0: As much as I like to fight everyone, yeah, yeah. I'm having a pretty good time here. Why you mad?
1: Why you mad? Why you you uh, mad? Why are you mad? Uh
0: hello, hey Louisa.
1: Um, hi Jake. How are you doing today?
0: good. I'm having a really good um October. I'm doing all the October things that I was talking about doing. And I think I've reached,
1: all the horror watching.
0: Yeah, a lot of movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. Been seeing some shows, went to a metal show the other night. I think cool. I'm getting my fill. I'm starting to feel like okay, I did I did it. Like when you go to like a Six Flags or something and you're like, okay, I rode yeah. nine out of the Thirteen rides or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's enough. Yeah, it's enough to write home about.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. But listen, there's more than that at Six Flags because my record is fourteen.
0: My record. One time, me uh-huh. and my brother went to Astro World when we were growing up, and what the fuck is Astro World? It was in Houston, but they tore it down like ten. Wow. 15 years ago. Uh-huh. It was really cool, and it
1: was like roller coasters and shit, or what?
0: Yeah, it was Six Flags, and okay. there was like it was cool because like some of it was. Houston used to be space themed, man. It used to be a cool city, so there was like this thing called the Looping Starship that was like shaped like the NASA shuttle, and it would like you get in it and it fucking flips you upside down and all shit. It was cool. So there's this other one called the Dungeon Drop that was one of those ones that just you just you go up and then it just drops you, and that's pretty much the whole ride. It was like shaped like a castle, and so me and my brother went to to uh, to Astroworld one time, and it rained, right? But then it stopped raining, so they didn't close the park, but everyone left.
1: That's how I got my record too! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice. Uh-huh.
0: So we went up to the dungeon drop, Damn. and there was no line, and we were like, what's the record for the most times anyone's ever ridden this in a row? And I'm sure they had lied to us. They, some, some kid was just running it and just said, uh, oh I think it's God. it's 30. So we rode it 31 times <laughs> in a row, which is like, yeah, I know. We probably just have brain damage now from just like...
1: <laughs> Hilarious. Dude, I felt really bad, because uh, mine was... Uh, I guess I was, like, in my early 30s. And so it was, like, a few years ago, right? And, like, uh, I went with a bunch of comics. It was organized by the Creek, actually, or, you know, whatever. So I went with a bunch of comics, some of whom I guess don't like me now. (laughs) But it was the same kind of thing where it started raining so like it was also on a weekday so it wasn't it was already not going to be that packed to begin with and then it rained a little bit so like all the families ran away screaming you know and then all <laughs> of a sudden there's just like no line anywhere yeah so i didn't do the multiple rides i did i mean the multiple rides on one ride i did like as many rides as i could yeah in there the you park. go park right so i literally was like if i would get to a ride and the line was too long i was like i can't wait <laughs> i'm gonna have to go to the next ride <laughs> and i just like go to the next one <laughs> and i did this with uh omar Shocket, you know him yeah he's, he's great. cool. Like yeah omar rules uh shout out to omar funny comic Uh, And his girlfriend, Anna Suzuki, who she's very funny too. She's an improv um, person and she's also an actress. She's on a medical drama that I watch called New Amsterdam. (laughs) But uh, so me and them. And I think there was like another person with us. I think their friend, Maya, who's also an improv lady. Okay. And the four of us went on like as many as we could. So we went on like 14 fucking different roller coasters. And I think the last one we went on was the wood one and jake afterwards like my whole spine hurt it was one of my early feeling like oh my body's actually getting too old for this shit kind of feelings yeah like i was like oh i wrecked my, <laughs> my spine with doing all this shit
0: yeah i jumped on a trampoline at like a party i was doing stand-up on when i was on tour a couple years ago and it like fucked me up and, it was <laughs> tour, and i was like oh no you can't do this anymore when you're like old and yeah. fat and shit like, Discs Mm -hmm. in your back are flying around. I'm going to pause real quick. Okay, so actually, you know what? That just reminded me of something. Um, Mm. You were talking about improvisers. Man, I read this crazy thing this week. This kind of conspiracy theory-ish level thread this guy tweeted out, but it's real. The main fact of it is real, which is that um, Dave Chappelle's mom worked for Patrice Lumumba, the like communist leader of uh haiti that was or haiti uh the congo was assassinated by the cia and who
1: patrice o'neill is named and
0: who patrice o'neill is named after right yeah and um but she didn't work for him like while he was alive she interviewed for him in like the end of the year right before he was assassinated and then started working like the month after he was assassinated so there's this conspiracy theory that she was part of the coup and like (laughs) No one knows whether it's true or not. But Let me
1: was, ask you this. Uh, how did you hear about
0: this? I somebody texted me and they just said you have to read <laughs> this. <laughs> oh
1: shit. Sorry. But, That's funny. And it's just like This is I get I get weird texts from people that are just like Did you know about this? What the fuck? (laughs) That is so weird. Interesting. So is it true
0: or no? It's just a conspiracy theory. I haven't really dug that deep because we're kind of busy, but I'm gonna. I'm I'm like Jake.
1: Do you know? Do you know if his mom was?
0: (laughs) Here's what I think is going on. She legitimately worked for. The post Lumumba government, and also interviewed, like, talked to Lumumba through a translator and stuff. The, the part of the crux of this whole theory is that the translator turned out to be CIA, which is like provable mm-hmm. and true. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, but I think it maybe it's a conspiracy theory built off of that. Like, the rest of it's like, you know, gotcha. wacko shit. But that that part's real though. Yeah. She really did that. It's like really interesting. But the, this is completely irrelevant to the, what kind of got me here though, because I was, uh, after reading about improvisers, this, there's another person involved in this story who is a CIA agent who um, if you <laughs> look up their very particular last name, cause all these fucking high society people have these elegant last names for some reason. Uh, they're gra- They have a grandchild who's a, who's a UCP improviser, which is like <laughs> I don't know if you know about like Joanna Houseman, the other one. There's ton like everyone from these CIA families who like. Through overthrew you know third world governments and shit in the seventies <laughs> and eighties. All of them are improvisers. It's so weird, and I know it's that is just really funny. It's just a class thing or something. I don't know, but like specifically, you know, improv, <laughs> fucking crazy. Well, probably because you
1: know. improv is like, I want to say maybe the most cost prohibitive form of comedy. No.
0: Yeah, because it's pay-to-play. Because you have to like pay yeah. to get your Zenu levels and fucking yeah. Phaetons and all that yeah. shit.
1: Yeah, yeah, and to be part of a team and all that bullshit. Um, but I actually... So what I did... I told you last week that I was going on a solo vacation.
0: Oh, yeah. How was right? that?
1: It was really great. Um, I really recommend it highly for everyone. I know you tour. Uh, I know comedians. Honestly, part of the reason that I was drawn to comedians always since I found out about stand-up as a kid when I was like 10 I guess is the solo aspect of your work.
0: Totally.
1: Right? And by that I don't even mean necessarily your creative work because obviously I don't identify with that. I'm not a comedian. I'm not interested in being a comedian. But I fucking fetishize your... you guys touring. (laughs) Like I if I actually thought stand-up were easy, I would do it just so that I could do this shit of like traveling the country, like a fucking weirdo and just getting up on stage and doing my shit for an hour, wherever the fuck. And then I get drunk with some fucking people who think I'm funny and we hang yeah. out. Maybe we fuck, <laughs> you know? And then you're like, peace <laughs> out. I got to go to the next town. And then you go to the next town and you fucking get to know those people and you eat the shit there. And you fucking like, that's amazing. That's all I've ever wanted in life. <laughs> that and it's just like torture to me that the price to do that is that i had to like have material and like get up <laughs> on stage and talk about shit and I'm like no thank you not interested but uh it's why i do offer and like do go with my friends when they like my friends who are comedians when you guys go and i'll yeah. like go with you um It is in a groupie way, I guess, but it's not in a groupie way of like, oh, I'm your entourage. It's like a groupie way for like, I just think this is awesome. Can I hang out with you while we just stay in weird hotel rooms and go to weird dive bars where all the white people look at us weird?
0: Yeah. Can you get (laughs) me into the buffet? Yeah, Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) It's great. You go do the show and then I go be weird and like meet locals and come back with bad weed and like, yeah, it'll be awesome. (laughs) It'll be great. That's what I do. Um, But so all that to say that the solo vacation is Akin to that experience, so it's something that I think you understand, but I think regular people don't do enough, right? Sorry, yeah. I don't know. Regular people is kind of rude, but you know, <laughs> non non touring performers uh, or non touring non perform. You get it. Um, but mm. I really enjoyed it because it, it had been the first time that I went on a solo trip. I think in like, dude, like five or six years, and I used to do it a lot to go to comedy festivals. You know um and this time i just went to beacon new york which is like two hours an hour and a half out of new york and i went specifically to see these two art locations so i really want to give you an art review right now this is what i'm going to tell you about Mm -hmm. but about the solo vacation part anybody who can you know i spent maybe like 400 bucks not including the entrances to the museums and shit uh, Cause I stayed there for a couple of days and at like a like shitty qual- quality inn, <laughs> you know, like it was great. I loved. It. So I'm like smoking out cigarettes outside the hotel. Fantastic, talking to like the old people <laughs> that are also not allowed to smoke inside. So we're like chilling, drinking outside. Yeah. Uh, I went to local bars where they were just like live bands. You know, like there was a. Uh, I was there for two nights and on both nights. I went back to the same place because they had a live band and it was a different band each night. And Jake immediately, what I could think of what I immediately thought of is what I should say is your analogy, which I have quoted to so many people since the last time, since the time that you said it to me, but it's literally going to the skate park to watch the guy that just loves to skate. Yeah. This is what it's like, like, okay, I'm looking at a band of people of this the first band had, was all men. the second band hit a lady um but they're all people in their like mid thirties or later, you know who are performing in a kind of hip very small in a very tiny town fucking out of the way place once a week or twice a week. you know what I mean right yeah. And they're fucking good and they're having so much fun and they do like they banter with everyone in between the songs and the bartenders like no, they know the bartenders and they all fucking cheers and have fun, like play fun songs that people sing. And you can just see that these are musicians who are enjoying the the, the act of playing music without. And that doesn't mean that they don't I'm not saying that they don't have regrets or things that they wish they had done or wish they had become famous or things where they feel like they missed out. But in that moment, they are not playing in front of me or in front of any of the people in this room because they're trying to be famous or because they're trying to prove they're better than anyone or because they're trying to network. They're literally just doing this on a Thursday night at 9 p.m after their real quote real jobs right because they love to do it
0: there's a scene in a movie that always makes me think about this i yeah. might have brought it up before i can't remember i have but it's like a go-to thing for me It's this movie called young adult where uh this woman is a young adult writer and she like i can't remember the exact is it
1: Charlize theron
0: something like that i think yeah um i think it Pat and Oswald has something to do with the movie. I can't I can't remember. I watched it a yeah. long time ago. But like
1: I think I hated it.
0: She's like, um a lot of people did. <laughs> well, yeah. there's this one scene that I think gets something right. Which is, mm-hmm. so, so she's like, um, her life is falling apart. Like she was supposed to get married and then she got, you know, divorced or something like that. Something along those lines. And then she goes back to her hometown and she has all these like grudges and stuff with her like people in her hometown like she's got her you know her, her old high school sweetheart and he's married to this new woman and she's like trying to get back with him or you know is just sort of romantically interested in him or whatever and anyway all culminates in the in this thing where his new wife who's like a woman who he's settled down with and they're adults and they just have a normal life has a band and the band is playing at a local like club and they go to see it. And like these like middle-aged women are playing in their band and they're having a good time. And like, you Mm -hmm. know, they're not the best band of all time. They're not the worst either. It just kind of exists. And they're all like really into it, but they're not like trying to become professional musicians. Clearly they have day jobs and stuff, but this woman who's like, uh, uh, clearly like in an arrested development state, who is still in high school in her brain while the rest of her friends have sort of grown up. She takes this moment to, like, do some high school shit, and she, like, kind of yells at the band or whatever. I'm getting all the details wrong because I haven't watched this in years, but she's just, like, sticking it to them. And she's like, you'll never make it and all this stuff. And they're looking kind of at her, and it's sad because what she doesn't realize is that everyone else
1: you're robbing the joy
0: yeah yeah and everyone else is, is like moved past this naive state of like oh the band's gonna that's make that's not
1: it. why we're doing it right yeah,
0: yeah. and yeah. i feel like that with fucking comedians all the time because i'll yeah. get these people that are just like You know, I I know where they're at, and they're mentally still a teenager, and they're, like, really riled up about this thing that they believe has all these endpoints that it doesn't have, and all these, like, goals and stuff, and so they'll be yelling at somebody like me, like you're you're not even you know that funny or your your career sucks or whatever and i'm like kind of laughing because i'm like I, i'm not that that funny i my career isn't <laughs> that great it's like not why i'm doing this you know yeah that's like childish to to think and also the person usually sucks too and it's just like look have a good time we should all just enjoy it have yeah. a show and you know
1: that's why i genuinely like do not i do not understand like i i i I was going to say welcome explanations, but I don't. I don't care. I just don't understand it. And I'm okay not understanding how, why, how people out there listen to podcasts they hate or, you know, I kind of get following someone on Twitter that you hate. I don't do it, but I get it because you're like, oh, whatever. You'll occasionally see a tweet from them and then you will laugh at them instead of with them. Right. Yeah. Still weird still kind of like why why do you need that feeling in your life i don't know that's fucking weird but it's fine i get it but to take like a whole hour hour and a half of your day <laughs> multiple times in your life to like listen to people you hate it's so weird to me i don't understand it yeah. but hey man welcome thanks listeners for tuning in
0: <laughs> patreon.com um, slash while you met
1: yeah exactly <laughs> send us an email you know you know what it is oh this is kind of cute and funny I don't know if I should say it because it's going to encourage them. I'll say it maybe on the Patreon episode. I'll tell, I'm i going to write it down. Hold on. Okay. Tell you about something funny that a troll did. Funny troll thing.
0: And that's patreon.com slash why you mad, where you can hear about <laughs> this thing that we're talking about that's too hot.
1: Yes, because I, I don't want to encourage future trolls by giving them this great idea, <laughs> but I can tell you about it on the Patreon
0: <laughs> okay, <laughs> because
1: cool. they can pay to find out what the great idea was of how to troll us. Okay. But anyway, as far as the solo vacation, uh so what I guess was starting with is just like the experience of um being away even for a couple of days away from everything and everyone so that there is nobody waiting for you for 48 hours there is no one that you have to check in with in terms of like what would you like to eat are you hungry <laughs> you know there's no conversation whenever you want to have breakfast you fucking go and have breakfast. If you don't want to wake up, you don't wake up. Or, you know, like sometimes you'll vacation with people who are like, oh, we have to make the most out of everything. We got to wake up at nine 30, you know, whatever. And you're like, yeah, this is not a vacation, bro. You're really fucking ruining my vibe here. Or, you know, but it, or you want to be participatory and friendly. So you're like, yes, I'll wake up with you at 930 and we can have we'll talk about what restaurant we'll go to and all this shit. That's a different experience than you just being completely free okay so when i say completely free i mean like you know i was also in a small town so like i went to see some art and then i had to poop <laughs> and then i was like i'm just gonna go back to the hotel and i just like <laughs> went to the hotel because it was an eight minute drive Used the bathroom washed my face washed my hands got ready again and went back out and found a creek went on a little hike went to a creek because i didn't want to use the porta potty at the creek you know what i mean so then yeah. i Went to the, I went to the creek afterwards, found somewhere to have a nice hike and smoke some weed. It was fantastic. Um, I went to two art things, uh, one which I thought was crap, and I was glad to be alone because I chose to leave even though it was expensive to be there, and one that was really amazing but small, and I think most people see it in an hour, and I was there for three and a half hours. <laughs> So these are the kinds of things that you can do when you're alone. You can just be like, yeah, man, fuck it. I'll do whatever I want. Uh, So, like, on the first day, I got a massage by myself from, like, a creepy dude. So you know it's a (laughs) good massage. Because creepy dudes know what's up, where to squeeze, what to touch. Yeah. So it was great. Tipped him well. And then the concierge, I I got the um, massage at a fancy hotel that I can't afford to stay at you get me, <laughs> but you go to the fancy hotel for the spa. Oh, Yeah, that's the hack. Smart move. So then I just go, and then when I get into the fancy hotel, the concierge, after I get my massage, is like, oh, you can go to the rooftop, there's, you know, fountains up there, you can hang out, whatever beautiful view, because uh, Beacon is, like, on Hudson River, so it's, like, a waterfront view, you know? Yeah. And um, I was like, yeah, sure, I'll go look at the fucking – roof like what the fuck i got literally nowhere to be (laughs) so i just walk upstairs and i get to this roof deck and it's beautiful you just see this like riverside view and these weird little fucking houses that like just like seem like out of a movie and there's nobody up there so i straight up just smoked weed up there (laughs) it was great and i was like this is great and then i walked down high as fuck and also after a massage you're like tingly you know yeah so i'm just like a little wobbly like clay creature that's very high. And I just walked downstairs with my sunglasses. I'm like, thank you so much. Love to see the sun sunset on your roof. Had a great time. And then I went to this bar where I watched the live music. And then the next day I had the appointment to go see uh the art, right? So I'll make it as quick as possible. But the first day I saw I went to Dia Beacon. Have you ever been or have you heard of it?
0: No, neither.
1: So I uh oh, I think I briefly told you about it last week when I said where I was going, but Zia Beacon is uh, the place that is um, a former Nabisco factory that was once it oh, shut down. Yeah, you did me It was this. purchased, yeah, by some pra- private fucking art person. And it was uh, developed to be uh, specifically for sh- showcasing large-scale sculpture, right? Or large-scale art.
0: Yeah, cool. And
1: the idea being that... It's large-scale art that needs natural light for its display, but can't really be outdoors, right? So for a lot of people, obviously, this is, like, for Sarah, Richard Sarah. And Richard Sarah, you know, it's not like a Banksy, you know? I don't think it's, like, gotten to the point where if you like Richard Sarah, you're lame. (laughs) But he is getting, like, it's really weird, Jake, because when I was in college, my advisor, I was a sculptor, right? Oops. I was a sculptor, uh, but I carved stone, okay? And my advisor was a sculptor who worked in metal, okay? And he, his, so his guy was Henry Moore. <laughs> Let's talk in uh, uh, what the fuck terminology okay uh, oh, this guy <laughs> yeah. yeah so my guy's guy was henry moore who was a guy who did both metal and stone uh kind of uh abstract female figures okay so he recommended to me a lot of henry moore because henry moore worked in stone like i did yeah but his other guy was richard Serra. richard sarah only works in metal and most people, I think at this point, have seen his work, even if they don't realize it, um, because a lot of his works are publicly commissioned, you know, so they're uh, in Chicago. Oh, I forget the name of the park, but there's a park in Chicago that has a giant Richard Serra <laughs> in the middle of it. And actually, I bring that one up because. Well, first, so Sarah, what he does is he makes uh, self-sustaining metal sculptures, Jake. And by self-sustaining, what that means is. They depend entirely on math and physics to hold themselves up.
0: Oh, they are not cool.
1: bracketed to anything. They do not have a stand in the middle. They are completely dense metal sheets that are positioned in a way where they are phys- like physics, physics wise, <laughs> perfectly balanced. Right. But what it means about his work, remember that it's iron or like it's like a giant uh, sheets of steel and it is humongous and it's not attached to anything and it's balanced upon itself so when you walk near a sarah piece it has the feeling of it could imminently fall on you and crush you (laughs) and you're just like i want to touch it so bad but it will kill me will it kill me (laughs) i'd love it Cool. so they're amazing uh you can just google them and see them there's one at lacma that is really great but everywhere that you see a richard sarah what it does is it intrudes into space, okay, and I want you to listen to my review of this with a comedy mindset as you would have anyway, sure. but I guess for the listeners, right because check out where I see these parallels, right, so Richard Sarah makes stuff that is huge, that is intrusive, that is kind of dangerous, literally edgy, right <laughs> like could fall on you and crush you as you're admiring how beautiful it is. Yeah. Uh, and everywhere that it is displayed, it, it functions as an intrusion into that space, by which I mean it, that space wasn't meant to contain a Richard Serra. Richard Serra created something that interrupts this space. You get me? Yeah. So in the Chicago Park, uh, what he made was like a giant steel sheet that's like a half arc right and it is arced at the perfect degree that it just like stands freely but it's like four tons okay it's like a giant fucking thing and what it does is it bisects the park (laughs) in half and so now everybody in chicago like hated it jake they hated (laughs) it because what it did is that it actually ruined their daily life because now they have to walk around this giant thing instead of being able to walk through the middle of the park to get to work or to go on their lunch break or whatever the fuck you get me. Yeah. So it's literally an intrusion. Um, I saw it at LACMA. I've seen one of his pieces at LACMA. I think it's a permanent exhibit for LA people. And it legit looks like uh, an Alice in Wonderland when she takes the pill that makes her too big, <laughs> You know? And she's like in a room, like out, like shoulders to the ceiling, be like, oh, I don't fit. Yeah, yeah. That is what a Richard Sarah looks like inside of LACMA, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, right? Oh, cool. Uh, I went to FIU, the Florida International University. Huh? And FIU actually had uh, three Sarahs, Jake, because that's what I mean. Like he wasn't famous when I was in school. He, like, now he's getting to be. Like a Banksy level
0: oh. where people
1: are like, oh, that's corny that you like him or that he's your favorite sculptor. But it's like, no, bitch, like we're talking Warhol before you knew who Warhol was. <laughs> like, get the fuck out of here. But anyway, it's I fine. knew who I Banksy was it.
0: before he was really famous.
1: Yeah, you get it. So then uh. you're like, I get what he's doing and I'm into it. And the pro- it's not a problem. The point is that an artist necessarily, when they become established... They necessarily also inspire a lot of, I don't want to say even copying, but like inspire a lot of following work from a lot of people, and therefore their work becomes diluted and less relevant with time. But it doesn't mean that it is not impressive in and of itself and what it set off. So I love fucking Sarah. Uh, but at FIU, there were three pieces, Jake. And like I said, because they're self-sustained, they, are, they, they pose a real actual fucking legal like, lawsuit threat <laughs> that somebody's going to get killed around this art that you put up in your university. Yeah. So there was one that was uh, like a giant flat sheet of steel that was up against the wall. And then it had a, a steel column that was laid diagonally up against it at the perfect angle to hold up the whole entire metal sheet. So that's the whole installation. is one flat sheet that weighs like two tons yeah, and then like a tiny, skinny fucking steel pole that holds the whole thing up because it's at the perfect angle. Yeah. (laughs) So the university was like, well, any fucking asshole can walk by here and just kick the fucking pole, and then the three-ton thing will fall on your ass. You know what I mean? Yeah. So FIU decided that they, the best thing they could do is bracket the flat sheet to the wall, Jake. So they took an artwork that is now could have been worth millions of dollars, and they drilled holes on two sides of it,
0: no. so that they could
1: attach brackets to attach it to the wall, so that they wouldn't get sued by some freshman who. Kicked the pole and got Smashed. a fucking sculpture on their head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So this is a way that I have seen this artist for 20 years now, mm-hmm. right? Is always in a space where uh his work is overwhelming and it's purposefully so. And at Dia Beacon, Dia Beacon is a place that was made to display work like Sarah's, if not Sarah exactly. And so he has a whole room that is dedicated to him that just has these giant fucking curls of steel that you can walk through and inside of. And they have what's even better, Jake. So because this was a factory before, they didn't uh, remodel it to turn it into a gallery space all the way. They left some of the spaces with the raw brick and the like factory windows at the top, you know? Yeah. So it lets in this like 360 degree light that I went from 12 to three. So I got to see the light go from one side of the room to the other side of the room. You get me? Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is the same light that a worker in a factory would be seeing as they're working on steel. Right. So in this space, Sarah's work fits like it's not. It's like peaceful. It's like it's home and it, the light that glows off of it that shows you the oranges and the blacks or even the places where he wrote the measurements, you know, and chalk on the side. You can still see that with the glare of the sun, like changing with the day. In a way where it's about the fabrication of the thing and about the the feel of the steel in a place where it actually gets created. And to me, it's why I spent three hours there. You know, it was uh, so it was an echo to me of why I like live stand up. And I don't think any version of recorded stand up ever compares because it seems like recorded stand up. is like an intrusion into any space where it's being played, whereas live stand up is like a space that was made for that. And you walked into that. And now you are enveloped by that actual experience and that art existing in the space. It was meant for.
0: Oh, no. Yeah, no, totally. I
1: I wasn't on acid, but this is what I sat there for three hours thinking. (laughs) No,
0: I totally get it. What? So I looked him up while you were talking and I can see Mm -hmm. all this stuff now. And I can, I think I can really take in what you were talking about. But when you first said (laughs) that he often gets his work put up in places where it's intruding on, these spaces in as opposed to like a place like that warehouse where it's at home that just made me think about like most live comedy shows being like ambush style in like bars and stuff like that where they have to come out and go surprise everyone you thought it was friday night (laughs) you thought karaoke was happening but it's not it's this other thing fuck you yeah you know and it's this thing that is beautiful in its own way but like it has to be just like thrust onto people unsuspectingly and shit, and it's like this because there's tension the whole time between, like, yeah. do I appreciate this or is it fucking weird and out of place? Um, yeah, but like, no, I think, I, yeah, that's a, also a really interesting way to look at it because, um, live stand up is like exhilarating, and yeah, I, I, I like albums on audio specifically because it helps me get closer to what i think it was like in the room like i'll like listen to them and like close my eyes and lay down and stuff like that but i think it's that the only reason i like those types of recordings is because they are just closer to what you're talking about which is the live show which is like if you were there but experience that is three-dimensional and like yeah no one a lot of times when people at least fucking stupid comedy fans that are angry on behalf of their favorite comedians they're not wrong about some of the stuff they talk about one of the things they talk about is like hey if you were there it felt a certain way you know um, I know a guy who was in the room at that like Peng Dang thing and he was tweeting mm. like no you don't understand like we were all having a great time which is like a dumb point because <laughs> it's like nah yeah, that's not the point like i'm sure you were you're a white dude and yeah. stuff was happening but like you know there's something to be said for uh you know the experience being only 100% authentic if you were like if you were there and i also um i like uh, what's going on with this guy's work too because something that's really big in surrealism i think like way back in like the salvador dolly days is uh something called visual tension where like you know the, he did that stuff with like a clock that's melting over the edge of a thing or whatever everything's melting in dolly and everything's being held up by these weird sticks and stuff and it's it's because your brain like has a conception of the universe involving gravity and shit like that, and so like the, the <laughs> tension of something almost falling over, are you being able to feel the weight of it is like really cool yeah. and lizard brainy and shit. So I like that. Um, I yeah no I, this makes a lot of sense now that you've explained it. Do you, has yeah, it? Yeah, I
1: loved it.
0: Has it ever fallen on anyone? <laughs> like has that ever happened?
1: <laughs> I've never looked it up. I don't think so. Uh, It's why uh you know it's funny because like i guess like i was telling trey about this and i was like you know like if you have a you guys as comics right if you have a guy that's your guy usually it's like a little bit of like i want to be like him kind of right and i want to surpass him in his kind of thing yeah right but sarah for me is not that kind of guy he's my guy in the sense of like holy shit, you do a thing I could never do, you know? Yeah. But I respect it and I love it and I look up to it while I'm, like, doing my thing over here with Stone, (laughs) you know, or, like, now making my little pots and they're not important and whatever the shit. I totally am just, like, it's crazy what you do because what he does is math, Jake. It's, like, mathematically... Because um, it's the kind of thing where like somebody who is like, oh, Jackson Pollock was just flashing. They might just walk in and be like, oh, this guy, this is just like a metal sheet of metal that he curled. And it's like, yeah, okay, but it weighs four tons. (laughs) And he curled it in exactly the perfect degree that makes it stand forever and not crush you, but make you feel like it's going to crush you. Yeah. So like some of them are curls that have like three Mm -hmm. layers Mm -hmm. to the ribbon. And you can walk inside of them, and and as you walk inside of them, the the ribbon gets, like, tighter and tighter. So you are walking in between sheets of metal that you're like, I'm not sure if I can fit through here or get out again. (laughs) But then (laughs) if you go through, it opens up in the middle to just, like, a big open cavern with, like, natural light in the middle. And then all of a sudden, it just glows with, like, red metal. You get me? Because it's, like, rusted. So it just has this, like, very Dune vibe, like, very, like, you're just in a different... You're enveloped by art in a way that you're not looking at paintings and other things. And this space really does a great job. So actually, so this is another funny thing that I wanted to tell you about that one before we go on to the other one, is... So, Jake, I already just told you about how they're, like, ginormous and fucking overwhelming fucking pieces, right? There is one room, right, after you go to this big one that has three or four of the giant, giant ones. You walk out, and then there's another one that is super giant that kind of looks like a big ship. And then you walk into this third room, and the third room, it has little windows at the top, so you can see the big giant guys in the back, in the room that's, like, very, like, a factory, right? Yeah. So then you kind of look around this little white room with windows, like, oh, where's the sculpture that's supposed to be in here? And then you look down, And on the floor, there is, like, imagine if you took, like, you sliced a wheel of cheese in a very, like, you took out a very thin little slice, right? Okay. And then you just laid it flat on the floor. But imagine that it was made of steel and it weighs three tons. (laughs) And so he, so literally, every piece this man has ever done is huge and towers over you and weighs in a way like it's very light at the bottom and very heavy at the top and makes you feel like you're about to be crushed. And yet here we are looking at something that's on the floor, extremely flat and extremely heavy on the floor. And I walk into this room and I just straight up start laughing so loud, Jake. And the guy that was in there, he like looks at me and he's like, what? Like he's like startled. Yeah, (laughs) because it's like like, an
0: art joke and you got it. That's a joke.
1: Thank you, Jake. (laughs) That is a fucking joke. That is hilarious. It was this was uh, the artist on his bad day. The artist on the day that he turns on the room. The comic on the day that he's mad that people
0: don't get the joke he likes. Oh man, have you ever heard that Paul F. Tompkins thing about jazz? Is this bit about jazz and he's talking about how jazz? You'll be listening to jazz musicians and they'll do like a jazz joke, which is when they all get into (laughs) a riff and then like because of the way music works, there's repetition to it and like so when you think they're gonna go. They all go. And
1: they Wah. go. Wah. And, he's,
0: and then they, and they, all start laughing, and you're like, and he's he's his bit as he's making fun of them for like mm-hmm. having to be nerds or whatever, and be having a music joke, but like that is real.
1: It's real. <laughs> and make fun of me for this, but like this, okay, it's doubly funny because a, it is uh, Sarah having a sense of humor about himself, right, and being just like, like you can tell this is a thing where like you. Okay, you. Ha- I'm sure you've felt this, but you know when you're like not feeling inspired and you don't feel like working on the previous thing that is the thing that was going well and you are not inspired to start a new thing, so you're kind of just mad at everything that is expected of you, what you're supposed to do, so you're like, fuck it, I'm going to do the opposite thing of what I normally do.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> Have you ever felt that? <laughs> yes, of course, yeah. All the time, yes. right now even.
1: That is what this piece for Sarah was. And the fact that the curators and owners or whatever the fuck of this place bought it and gave it its own room (laughs) in a (laughs) fucking space that is all about super giant sculpture is hilarious. Like I'm like, dude, this is so funny. You literally bought the turning on the room piece <laughs> you know the pieces it's like no oh you like this fuck you i'm gonna give you flat on the floor <laughs> that's how it's self-sustaining <laughs> it lays on the floor
0: <laughs> man i mean it's like so funny because i could so see being on acid and working this out because what acid yeah. does to your mind but it's also real like of <laughs> course it just helps you decode this thing that's, yeah. that's actually happening. The other thing before we get away from this guy now, now that I'm thinking about this, it's like, uh, this is like this kind of blowing my mind. Like the thing where he was in a college and they had to <laughs> bolt one down because someone could yeah. potentially have knocked it over. That's that is that's like when they censor like Your curse jokes, words yeah. or on like the uh-huh. radio and stuff like that. And you literally yeah. you're right. It's like. It's not it's out of its element, and it's because of the Mm -hmm. stupid space that it's in that's a social space, right? Socially defined that makes And then
1: now it's dangerous in this space, right? It in its own space, it's art and it's beautiful and it's awe-inspiring. But outside of its own space, it's fucking borderline
0: dangerous. (laughs) Yeah, well and also uh, it's dangerous because potentially someone could get hurt and it's in a space that's owned by people who need to make money and, uh, we well, don't need to, but like are capitalists and shit like that. And that's
1: their and motivating factor. So
0: it, I mean, it's funny. Cause when people get mad about comedy being censored and it, like ruining comedy, this is what they're describing. I think that they just don't go far enough to go. Yeah. And that's all happening because of capitalism, not because of the person like a, like a comedy fan, like a shithead comedy fan would blame like the um the audience in that situation for there being yeah. a pole that holds the thing up and go yeah. like, well, you just can't handle it. It's like, no, it's literally yeah. it's because they have lawyers and stuff and they projected like that they would lose. And money. they know
1: that somebody will trip on it or something will happen. Yeah.
0: Or they'll blame the person that trips on it. And it's like, yeah, I'm OK. That's a whole other fucking thing. But yeah, that's really interesting because like if this guy's work is creating this constant moment that is like kind of edgy that like pushes you and makes you feel like, Whoa, am, I, am I about to do it? You know, is it about yeah. to happen? Like that is very akin to the line steppy nature of what, Comedy does when it's done Edgelords, well baby. All the time. He's the
1: edge lord of of sculpture. Yeah, that's Jake. cool. And, and sorry that's... to interrupt <laughs> you, but understand that I've said previously on here that sculpture is the least edgy art, right? Yeah. I have said this before because of the temporality issue, right? Most sculptors are working in the past. They are not future futurists. They it's not possible to be a futurist and be a sculptor because of the timeliness of your work, which is that any sculptor has an idea about something, it takes fucking literal weeks to months to make the thing. And then years after that, before it gets displayed or put somewhere. So that's why most common people like, you know, regular, I don't (laughs) don't know, you know what I mean? Like most people in society's experience with sculpture are these uh, historical sculptures in parks and public spaces, right? because there is very little actual futuristic sculpture. And Sarah is in the space where like, yeah, now it's considered the past because he did this 20 years ago. And now people are catching up, but it was futuristic in what it was doing because it was not, he has never been someone who was like paying homage or whatever the fuck to the past. He was not celebrating history or identity. He was absolutely just playing with form and physics and the idea that the artist can create something that both interrupts and titillates and is seen as dangerous and exciting at the same time. And he succeeded in doing that. And to me, that's the closest, like, it's almost like... um, Richard Serra brings sculpture back around to meet up with comedy, which is the fastest temporality art in my opinion. Yeah. Where it can adapt more quickly to society and everything that's happening. But Richard Serra connects it back back around by being like actually you can be edgy and dangerous and minimalist and I guess like push forward with sculpture in the way that, that comedy does.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
1: I loved it. So I do recommend Dia Beacon to anyone that's into that kind of shit.
0: I want to get crushed by one of the sculptures now.
1: Me too, dude. <laughs> I So I have like a real aversion to using the the term daddy in a sexy way. But I just like I had to stop myself multiple times from just like putting in my stories, pictures of Sarah's work and just being like, crush me, daddy. Because <laughs> that's all I-, I just walked around there for three and a half hours being like, oh, crush me, daddy. I love you so much. Our daddy. Mm. I'm like, oh, that's so perverted. I got to talk to a therapist about this right now. This is bad. <laughs> um, but anyway, so okay. Dia Beacon, really fantastic. Go check it out. There's also other artists that are really great. Uh, but I wanted to tell Jake and you guys about Richard Sarah. The next day, I went to Storm King, which, Jake, if you've seen, if you live in New York, it's like an Instagram place. Everybody loves to go. Uh, It's one of the places that, like, all the trad couples go in the fall, right? You go apple picking. You go to Storm King. Um, And what Storm King is, is a giant, like, outdoor space that has big, giant sculptures, like, dotted around in different places. So you pay an admission fee to go park your car somewhere and then you're like let out into this field to go walk around and look at sculptures Uh so first of all extremely disappointing experience (laughs) because it's like a family thing dude it's like fucking people with their babies and strollers and old ladies and fucking uh wheelchairs and it's like you know the whole family's here and we're gonna walk around right and this you at first you'd be like louisa what's wrong with that okay you know what's wrong with that Children climbing on art is what's wrong with that, Jake. So everyb- everywhere I walk to look at a sculpture, there's just like children climbing all over it because they think that it's a jungle gym.
0: Sure, because yeah. Because it's
1: outdoors and it does, in fact, resemble a jungle gym. <laughs> so it is on the parents. Yeah, it's on the parents to read the signs. They clearly say, do not climb on the art and say to the kids, do not climb on the art. So I only bring this up because... You know, upon first walking in, I was like, okay, I see how this could be a great place to start training your children on how to experience art, right? Mm-hmm. But instead, these people are letting them treat art like it's a jungle gym. So, nobody's learning anything about art. First of all. Second of all, every sculpture I walked up to, I would look at the sculpture and then I would look behind it and behind it, Jake. We're like beautiful views. It's like hills and it's fall. There's like one yellow tree and then all the green trees. And then like this one's got all red leaves. The land, the landscape is awe inspiring, shocking, beautiful. The art is 1980s rejected corporate art.
0: Oh wow. It fucking sucks. Damn. It
1: sucks so bad. And, Honestly, no judgment on everyone who's posted about this place. But honestly, I am judging you now because (laughs) it's fucking terrible. And you all acted like you were going to some place to see good art. But no, you were just going to like a park. Get the fuck out of here. Take pictures of the beautiful trees. The art sucks. We live in New York City, right? Jake, did you know that um, like if you walk around Midtown Manhattan, every corporate building has million dollar art in the lobby, And for free, you can walk in and see Picassos and fucking Frank Stella's and Richard Serra's and like all this shit. Literally in the front of like the Sealy Mattress Factory (laughs) Corporation or like whatever the fuck. Better art than what you went. Like, I paid 50 bucks to go in this place to see garbage art. (laughs) The only good thing that I saw was amazing red trees. I found a place to smoke weed. It was passable. But the art was
0: terrible. Can you explain what makes like a sculpture at Storm King a bad sculpture?
1: Ooh, that's hard. I don't know because I guess obviously I'm speaking subjectively where I'm saying I don't think that this is good but what I think makes them bad is actually the lack of curation, right? Because what it is is a random assortment of large scale sculptures that they were able to acquire to put into this space. So they're not related to each other. There's no labels explaining anything about the artist's vision. There's no treatment of these pieces as art in any way. They're just like plopped randomly around. And then in some cases they have like weird little fences around them so people won't climb on them, right? Addressing the previous problem that I said, but it defeats the whole purpose Of you placing large scale sculptures out in nature if you're gonna put a fucking fence around it, you fucking morons. (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) how is it in nature now if it has a fence around it, idiots? It sucks. (laughs) The whole thing sucks. It's so bad, dude. I was just like, I can't believe all these people paid to come here. (laughs) It's just like, you could walk around Midtown and see better sculptures. And not pay this money. But if you had told me you're paying to come here and see the foliage, I would not have felt cheated at all. It would have been like, what amazing foliage. <laughs> 50 bucks, maybe too much. But 20 bucks, I would have paid to see the foliage, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, I guess that's the comparison that I would make in comedy there is the idea of like when you go to a comedy club, right? hmm I think especially like regular people and by regular people, I mean people who don't make comedy their thing every single day of their life. They trust that when they go to a comedy club, they are getting this curated version of this art form that will be like an elevated version of like people that are good and that together make a good show and make a good experience. For oh me. yeah, all the, the best.
0: ads on the wall. Yeah, the best. Exactly. We got the best. There's gonna
1: be the best. We did all this research. Perfect order. Yeah, it's gonna be great. But in reality, at almost all the clubs, it's they're bad lineups. The order is completely random yeah. based on like who was available at what time. Uh, there are filler comics who are just there so that they can be bumped in case somebody more famous shows up there are famous people showing up who are just not even trying and just doing like banter fucking bullshit on stage it's not good most of the time at clubs it's not good stand up comedy Yeah. but they charge you a bunch of money for it and so you walk out being like wow I had a great stand up comedy experience that's what people are doing at Storm King Jake They're going there being like, I'm going to get some great art. Everybody posts about this. This is a great place. And then they're like, oh, this is great. I got my fucking selfie with the giant fucking sculpture. I'm out. I know about art now. And it's like, no, actually, you don't.
0: Uh, you got a
1: horrible, horrible art experience.
0: Giant sculptures, Ian Carmel or something.
1: Yeah. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, kind of, maybe. (laughs) I'm
0: just thinking of something you would take a a selfie uh, with in a comedy yeah, club that's
1: exactly big
0: it's earthquake i got a picture with earthquake um mm-hmm. that's interesting yeah and it's uh, a ha- hacky 80s commercial art just like it's in the totally it's yard.
1: 80s commercial art absolutely it's like um just go, man. Pay the 50 bucks. You'll see. No, I'm saying it's
0: at the club, too. It's also a hacky 80s commercial art. Right. That's comedy. why it's the
1: same thing. It was absolutely. <laughs> it even made me think of, like, the Seinfeld episode where What's-His-Face was, like, always writing his coattails. Seinfeld's coattails. Like, oh, like, Seinfeld would Banya kill. Or Kenny or Banya. Yeah. So, Seinfeld would kill, and Banya would go up after him every time. So, Seinfeld was obsessed with the idea that Banya only kills because he goes after, after him. Yeah. Wait, what was I telling you this?
0: I completely forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That but relates anyway. It's to sculptures.
1: No. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'll think of it and then, you know, tweet about it. But anyway, what what art did you enjoy, Jake, uh, this I,
0: week? I watched a couple of movies um, that I thought were kind of relevant to what we talk about on the show. One of them is this movie called Only Lovers Left Alive, which is a vampire movie that Jim Jarmusch made. Uh, I don't love know, like him. eight years ago or something like that. It in 2014 or something. And uh, I don't know if I love him. I think he's hit or miss, but this is definitely one of his best things he's made that I've ever Ooh, seen. Ooh, that's fair. Um, but it's really... So
1: would you, would you say coffee and cigarettes, though, is a hit?
0: I liked coffee and minute. cigarettes okay. a lot. I okay. thought it was pretty cool. Okay, so I'll watch
1: this one for sure.
0: Um, yeah, it's very much his vibe. It's like these cool hipsters. So there's these two... The, the story revolves around these three ish four ish vampires and they live in detroit the main couple is this guy (laughs) that's already very funny (laughs) and it's real cool because they have been vampires for a long time they've been alive for like hundreds of years you know and so for whatever reason right now they're living in detroit which is like this dead city and they sleep all day, and they get up at night, and like, um, I think they're a couple, but they don't live together, there's something kind of interesting going on there, where they've just got this like, very um, enlightened way of living their lives, you might say, and the guy is like a Jack White type, in fact, they even mention Jack White in the movie, because he's like a, the main character is a music nerd, and so his thing is collecting all these musical instruments, and like, he's got you know, he can identify one from being from like the year 1905 or something like that because he's been around for so long and stuff. And they just fucking lay around all night listening to records and just vibing. And, uh, -hmm. when they have to drink blood, he goes and he gets it from the, this doctor. Then he goes in and he's got like a whole operation where he has a fake ID and he dresses up in scrubs and he looks like he works there. He finds the, his doctor, who's his hookup. He slips him a bunch of cash that he has from being a vampire and shit. And uh, they, then the guy hooks him up with typo-negative blood. And then him and his girlfriend just sit around all night just, like, drinking, you know, casually this typo-negative.
1: That's me. Nobody drink me.
0: <laughs> and, um... They've also got this other friend who's, like, older, and um, they sort of correspond with him from time to time. He lives in France, I think. And so what happens is they're hanging around, and the main guy has this little, like, he has a human that, like, he kind of keeps around, and the guy goes into town and does you know, jobs for him and stuff.
1: He's familiar?
0: Yeah. Yeah, he's like a familiar, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like a little rock and roll guy, right? And don't
1: don't pretend we're not all
0: goths on this podcast. Yeah, yeah Totally. We
1: know we know about a familiar.
0: <laughs> so he's familiar is a he mm-hmm. works in the rock industry, right? And so <laughs> And also main guy is like, he makes music and like oh, cool. okay. everyone that's talking to him is always like, man, your new shit is like so good. And he plays it sometimes in the movie and it's just this like, real post punky gothy shit. Right. And, but it's like real deep and like, you can tell he's like a good guitarist cause he's been studying for like hundreds and hundreds of years. Right. And, so then he finds out, he keeps hearing through his familiar, like, oh, they were playing your music at the club. And he's like, huh, like, how? I don't understand. I How would it ever leave the house? I don't have any yeah. secrets here. You know, like, or how, how do people know this secret music or whatever? I don't know. So that's, like, yeah. one kind of story that's going on. And then the other is that his girlfriend has this cousin who is, like, uh, a nightmare, you know, and is this manic... Crazy woman, and she announces she's coming to visit. And the guy's like, "Fuck no, not after what happened last time." And what you know, when they're talking about what happened last time, they're referring to something like two hundred years ago or something. And he's like, "Not oh, after eighteen forty-five, <laughs> not after that, because yeah. that's when we fucking yeah. moved out here." We keep saying we had to move out here after the last one. Right? Maybe it was like in the nineteen yeah. hundreds. I can't remember, but um, yeah. but that's kind of you know the story there. And then you're like, "Huh, I wonder what this is." What?
1: What happened? Yeah.
0: So she comes to visit. and she's like let's go see a show let's go out to this rock guy's fucking club and see a show and she convinces them all to go out and they wear sunglasses and they're drinking the blood from like a flask and the you know the guy doesn't know they're vampires so he's like can i have some (laughs) and they're all like no like at the same time like you can't drink (laughs) it because it's blood it's really funny and then they kind of just have this interesting night where they watch this band and they go back and they're hanging out and everything is very like um cocaine coated like it's all very much like they're staying up doing coke or whatever uh because they're hipsters and stuff and so then the crazy cousin girl or sister whatever the fuck she was um you know she's like hitting on the human familiar the whole time and they're all looking at her like don't you do anything crazy we are you know enlightened vampires um and then they go to sleep and they wake up and she's drank the guy like she ate him right and she killed him And he's like pissed because he's like, you idiot. Like we now we're like a murder happened. There's like a missing person. We have to like start figuring out how to get rid of the body and all this stuff. And also, and this is the main thing that I think is really interesting is he's like, uh, he says, you know, it's the year so-and-so or whatever. He goes, it's not fucking night. It's he goes, it's not fucking 1645 as if to imply that in the vampire world, like it's barbaric to actually now kill humans to be
1: murdering people. Yeah.
0: <laughs> they're like vegans. Right. And so they're like, yeah. no, we don't like, we live like, you know, side by side with these people. And yeah. like, it's unethical and dirty to like actually do vampire shit that way. That's the way of the past, which is like, you know, the way you might think of, um, consuming, uh, meat or something like that. And then they, ha- they freak out cause they like, they've done this before. This is the thing that happened before is that she always fucking yeah. kills somebody. And, oh, she's from L.A., by the way, which is a really fun part of this. And, like, he hates L.A., and he's like, ugh, L.A. It's... He, they call uh, normal people, they call humans zombies, and uh, he uh, well, like, <laughs> he's just like, L.A. That's very funny. Fuck, yeah. He's like, L.A., fucking zombie central, you know? Like, oh, yeah. It's full of these like boring-ass people or whatever uh, that don't live in interesting places like Detroit, I guess. And so they flee. <laughs> And they're like, "Fuck!" Because she did this shit. We have to leave our home, or else like we'll get arrested. And then you know you can't. That can't happen if you're a vampire. Because then you die. Because they don't understand you. Yeah, because you'd just be in
1: prison forever.
0: Well, you would not get your blood, and then you would just die. Oh, and then you die. Right. Uh, Well, you
1: could eat your fucking cellmate.
0: (laughs) I guess you could. Yeah. Um, So, but these people are like enlightened vampires, and they don't drink people. So yeah. They are like, fuck, like they they get as much of their blood together as they can. They start calling people up. They have to fly like specifically overnight flights and stuff like that. And um, he has to like leave all his instruments behind, which are like his thing, you know. And they fly to France where their other friend lives. And they're like, he's always got a plan. He's our best guy. We've known him forever. He'll help us out. And they get to him and he's dying. And Ed, I know.
1: Okay. It's <laughs> like
0: it's so sad. He's like dying of like old age or something like that. And they're like, Oh no, we're really fucked. Cause he used all his blood and now he's dying. And they're like already like starving. Cause they've been like on a plane all night and stuff. And the sun's about to come up. And he's like, uh, and then he looks at the wall. He's got this like fucking. um, All throughout the movie, there's there's in these vampires' homes, there's all these portraits all over the walls, and it's of people. The first time you see it, you don't really understand what it is, and then when he starts talking about it, he explains basically that I think what the deal is is that uh, he's Shakespeare but he's not really Shakespeare he's you know how that theory goes like around Homer. about how yeah. yeah about how Shakespeare's like yeah. 20 people or whatever So mm-hmm. these vampires are these great artists and the reason they're great yeah. is because they've lived for so long that they can like do yeah. some stuff superhumanly like by watching yeah. generations of art but then they have to launder their art through human artists Case human
1: person yeah
0: yeah and like you know just how to who, who, who i don't know what the implication is of how that works but like yeah on one of these shrines there's literally like uh you know there's like all these like normal things you would guess like oh Jimi hendrix or whatever or the beatles rodney dangerfield is apparently <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> yeah. it's really
1: Yay. it's
0: really cool and then the last thing that happens is like after their friend dies, they're like, shit. And they run out into town and they're like hiding and lurking in the shadows. And the, the main guy watches this musician in this like French cafe. And she's like incredible. And um, he says something. I got to find the fucking picture I took of it because it's such a good line. Is that he, I think his friend says, I hope she gets famous. And he, where the fuck is it? He responds by going, is this it? Oh, yeah. She's uh, <laughs> So the girl says, I'm sure she'll be very famous. And he says, God, I hope not. She's way too good for that. Right? So they have this, like,
1: yeah, it's beautiful." very
0: chic understanding of, like, fame yeah. and Hollywood and stuff. And then the end of the film is that they're, like, literally, like, about to die. And they come upon this couple And they're like, should we do it? You know, like we're going to die. And this like they're standing right there and there's this very tense moment. And then the last shot of the movie is them like their fangs just sort of slowly sliding out. And it's like they're going to do it. But what's really interesting about that to me is that they had this ethical like line about consuming people. And I think that it's supposed to be like metaphorically a double entendre with, um, ethics in like the arts. Cause they're fucking art hipsters or whatever. Yeah, And they sort of are these diehards who are like, we, I will never do that. I don't like fame. I don't need to be famous. I just want to sit here in my fucking home in Detroit all night
1: and make my art and yeah. just
0: make art. And like, he's kind of concerned when he finds out it's getting out, you know, and like nothing good comes of, you know, the, the metaphorical consumption of people In the creative world, which is the networky stuff, the throwing other people under the bus and that sort of shit. But when it comes down to it, you kind of don't have a choice. Like you can be thrown. Like the whole system is set up in this way that even by the actions of somebody else, like some chaotic person, like the woman's sister, you kind of like you can't kind of you see this like very like it's very good. It's very Jim Jarmusch, you know. It's very like um like hip and like cynical. Like, these people have been doing the right thing for so long for the entire movie, and they don't have, like, a big meltdown, like, crisis of faith when they're tempted to break their code and kill someone else to survive, but they do kind of just go like uh you know like, the way it was, like, <laughs> like which a, is
1: like very realistic yeah which yeah. is the
0: way it is in real life all it's the time like, uh, like yeah ah, it's you or me man fuck yeah. all right sorry <sighs> you know what
1: am i gonna do here yeah
0: mm-hmm. yeah i thought it was cool it reminded me of like us honestly with like mm-hmm. you know being like ethical and stuff but living in you know the system. I mean, it's.
1: Yeah, where you're just like, I'm shooting myself in the foot by trying to be ethical every single time. It's bad.
0: Well, if I mean, but, it, it, if it came down to it, if it came down to a situation where we had to, like, you know, a th- hypothetical situation, because then the arts it usually doesn't happen. You can usually just. You could quit and get a regular job. Like, no one's like, make a painting or you'll die or whatever. Yeah. But if that happened, you would choose to make a bad painting, right? Or to right. make a bad. That's decision. the thing.
1: And that's the thing that was even uh, in billions this last season was a theme. Uh, There was a painter character that, like, the main stockbroker dude basically was, like, trying to game art. You know what I mean? So he was, like, he found out about this hot new artist that everybody's into. Mm -hmm. And instead of, like, just buying one of his pieces, he goes to the artist and he's like, hey, I want to commission you to produce pieces for me, right? I'll give you this amount of money to make me six paintings or whatever. Right. Yeah. So he gives this artist a space in Soho, like a fucking loft, right. That costs fucking $5,000 a month. And he, he tells him you're going to get a million dollars if you make me six paintings, whatever. So then the whole season of the show, the arc includes this one character who is not usually part of the show. And he finds himself suddenly elevated as an artist where he doesn't have to worry about money or paying rent or anything because this rich man provided him with a studio and is giving him up front, a bunch of money to produce all these paintings. Yeah. So he starts trying to produce the six paintings for this guy. And as he tries to do it, like he just has the equivalent of writer's block, I guess. Right. Because the impetus for creating this is not his creativity. It's the fact that he owes someone a product that they purchased. You get me? Yeah. And so then he starts to have this like contentious relationship with his own art where instead of being an outlet for his experience and his viewpoint and all this shit, it becomes a thing that he has to manufacture in order to sell to someone who already put a dollar value on it before it even existed. And so if he doesn't provide that, then it's not just like, Oh, you're not creating. It's like, you are failing to meet a contractual obligation. (laughs) Like it even gets harsher than you just didn't produce. Yeah. So this whole season is this arc of this, this artist, just like in some ways reveling in those successes of like, Oh, you know, going to this like cocktail party where all these rich people are like fawning over him and offering him money for art because this other rich guy already wants these six paintings. So that means he's, you know what I mean? Like not because they've seen his work, and know that he's good, (laughs) but because they know he's got a pedigree, and other rich people want it, and whatever, so he's simultaneously, like, enjoying how good it feels to be wanted by all these people, and to have his work valued extravagantly, and to have all these expectations that are high, like, placed on him, but then also feels the cage of it all, and the fact that it's, like, This is no longer me being the free artist that got me here. Now I am obligated to produce in a way that keeps you people happy because you're the people that are paying me to live. Yeah. And I think that's like the eternal struggle of the artists and capitalism. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, anytime you have just like a deadline or just like a job, it's corrupting of the thing. And it's like, Yeah, it's like an intrinsic problem within it. You know, okay, so the other thing I watched kind of relates to that, too. Um, There's this documentary called Jodorowsky's Dune. So Jodorowsky's Mm. like the surrealist uh, uh, director, film guy, who made Holy Mountain, this big famous thing. And if you've never seen Holy Mountain, you should watch it, probably on drugs. It's insane. (laughs) It's a great bizarre it's a surrealist film which is like a hard thing to pull off um it's fucking an hour plus of uh you know s- symbolism and stuff and it makes your brain feel like you're dreaming so he's um <laughs> i can't remember what country he's from somewhere in Latin america <clears throat> um and he uh but he's like a old you know white auteur guy and he um he at one point, so I I guess the story of this documentary is that the, the fucking movie Dune that's like out now is a reboot of the, the film version of Dune from 1984, which David Lynch produced uh, or directed. And that itself is the film version of the book Dune. And, uh, you know, we all know Dune now, I guess if you had done before, um, I think we've talked about it on the show before the, the, you know, huge, um, dune lovers yeah the 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 crazy historical and moral um implications of the story
1: allegory yeah
0: it's really great um better than star wars all that shit right um mm-hmm. no time to get into it but uh <laughs> like never
1: mind the whole actual meaning of the thing but <laughs> no <laughs> <Just> kidding,
0: <girl. laughs> well it's just one of those things that would be its own podcast Yeah, but, yeah. so Rowski got uh hired in the early 80s to make dune when they were first gonna make it into a movie and he like made all the things that you make when you start planning a film like that like you make like a little bible you know like a a book with all the art and how everything's gonna look and the storyboards and stuff and he is a lunatic and so he made all of these crazy decisions that were very avant-garde and it caused the um the budget to get pretty high and so it was really difficult <laughs> apparently getting all the money together to make it like for one uh, one thing is that he wanted the main emperor to be played by salvador dolly who was like alive at the time he never met salvador dolly so he went to uh france or wherever the fuck he was living at the time to go meet him and pitch it to him. And they had this crazy interaction and the two complete crazy people, you know, going at each other and doing these like jokes at each other. And then finally, whatever he said some crazy thing and they're speaking like riddles at each other. It's so funny. I can't remember what he said. He said like, um, Dolly came to him and said, ah, I can't remember it, but it's it's something really Mm -hmm. brilliant. And he answers (laughs) with like a, in like a riddle answer and then dolly lights up and he's like ah you're my friend now Yodorowski, right and so dolly's supposed to play the main villain but he wants part of his bit is that he's like he's never been in a movie before and he's like Dali yeah. must be the highest paid actor of all time. A hundred thousand dollars an hour. Oh my God. Hilarious. Um, just because it
1: blows his budget out of the whole
0: part thing. of a bit that he just yeah. feels like, yeah, that's, that's going to make this movie extra surreal as if yeah. I'm the highest paid actor of all time. And I'm only in a movie once. So the way he works around that is that he goes, okay, how about we pay you a hundred thousand dollars an hour? or right. I'm sorry. Not an hour, a minute. And, but get this, you're in the movie for three minutes. And so he's figures out a clever way to be like that way you're the most high-paid actor of all time. No one gets paid $100,000 a but minute. But we're
1: not paying Yeah, but we're not going to pay more than 300,000. Yeah, <laughs>
0: and he's like the way we'll get around that is that your character is a recluse and he only communicates through this Salvador Dali shaped robot that we're going to make for the movie and cool and then dolly's like you are brilliant and then they like they were gonna do it (laughs) (laughs) like he's he's an idiot (laughs) yeah (laughs) and he he, like he tracked down fucking orson wells because he just was like there's a fat guy you know the the baron harkonnen and he wants him to play him and he's like I'll fucking get this. He tracks him down in this restaurant. He buys him a bottle of wine. It's like his fifth bottle of wine. And he's like, I'll hire the chef from this restaurant. Every day you will eat like you're at this restaurant. And fucking Orson Welles is like, I'm in, you know? And then like, uh, then he gets HR Geiger and HR Geiger's never fucking been in movies before this. And he draws up all this incredible art and stuff. And they're like,
1: this is me doing a movie. I would just be like, (laughs) Who cares about what money is? I just, this would be the best artistic choice.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And so they have like all of this insane shit. This like super group full of people to make this movie. And then they go to finally pitch it to the big studios in America. And, the studio heads basically say, this is a brilliant movie. It'll never happen in America. And yeah. it's either because of the budget. Like, honestly, I think I think they actually came up with the budget. But the problem was that uh, American film is just such that they were like, well, we won't make any money off of the film because uh, what we want is... Something that's predictable, like the classic Hollywood yeah, thing. Yeah, like a big is,
1: blockbuster. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, you go in and you say it's um, uh, Star Wars meets Die Hard or whatever. Like you, you yeah. know, they want things that already exist to be like placeholders for this. And there was yeah. nothing like this at the time. Um, yeah, and so. They he like just it just never happens and it never like eventually they the studio sold the rights to David Lynch and they made the David Lynch one and it's like pretty bad. It's funny. It's like a weird cult movie, right? Um, But what's crazy about it is like HR Geiger on in the process of all this met this other artist, Bob Fosse, who made is famous for making a bunch of shit. And so he never got to make the movie that he was hired to make. But those people met because of this project. And then they went on with another guy from the project out, yeah. to make Alien. It was, yeah. And, like, it would have never been made had not this one failed project happened. And, yeah. like, in Star Wars, all of this shit, Star Wars comes out afterwards, all of this shit that's in Star Wars is, like, it's so like they clearly took it all from like his storyboards and stuff like this like if you've ever seen holy mountain and you see the way that like the wizards are sort of like um symmetrical and set up against that like black and white background at the beginning of the movie that that's like the same shit as when darth vader and obi-wan kenobi like fight each other the first time like they look almost like they're in like a, a street fighter video game where they're like perfectly in profile to each other and shit it's all from his shit it's fucking crazy right so, i've never
1: seen star wars but i believe you
0: oh wow um yeah sure. nobody write
1: to me about this i don't want to i don't yeah. wanna have this conversation.
0: No, I, I don't, <laughs> i'm not going to do that to you i'm sure you've heard it all
1: yeah no <sighs> i will briefly just say that i um i went to see the jar jar binks one in the movie theater because <laughs> my boyfriend at the time was a guy who grew up in the 70s and he was like yeah we gotta go see the Remake or the reboot or whatever the fuck, (laughs) and I was like, "This is terrible." And he was like, "Yeah, no, I swear they're not all like." (laughs) like, No, I think it's really bad. And then I just never watched any of them because when I tried to watch the original one, mm -mm, it didn't work for me. I had watched Spaceballs first,
0: yeah,
1: and it ruins. I can't take this seriously now that it's just <laughs> baseballs with no jokes. <laughs> like, this is terrible. <laughs>
0: yeah. Do not
1: like it. Don't write, don't write to me about it. But I am totally going to watch this movie. What is it called? Love what now?
0: The vampire one? Yeah. Only Lovers Left Alive.
1: Only Lovers Left Alive. Okay. Yeah, no. I totally want to see this.
0: Well, I gave it away sounds... the whole plot, but it's really... I
1: know, but I also... You know, I don't have any memory. I'll rewatch the whole thing and I'll be like wow who's 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 the bad guy <laughs> yeah
0: it's it's also not like a fucking like a spoiler would really it's the movie's yeah no you got to see it yeah it's yeah it's totally
1: it sounds amazing i'm really into it um i think it's really funny that once again we were like i don't know if we have anything to talk about and we didn't get to like have the things yeah
0: like no this. we always have shit to talk about there's so uh,
1: but we'll do it on the next episode um i think we went long enough already so we'll leave the other stuff for later yeah yeah let's do it Let's do it. And we're going to do a Patreon episode now. So uh, patrons, you'll get that shortly. If you're not a patron, uh, sign up at patreon.com slash pod. We do uh, two extra episodes a week. No, a month right now that are uh, mailbag episodes. But, you know, we're working on possibly doing more if we have more follow, what is it subscribers we'll yeah we'll fear we'll feel more pressure <laughs> smash that
0: patreon button and we'll make yes. more stuff
1: everyone else you'll, you'll you'll hear from us shortly uh write to us at why you met pod at gmail.com and we'll answer your question in the future
0: all right oh um yeah t- tour dates
1: do you have anything you want to plug
0: Yeah, Fest, Gainesville, a couple other shows around that part of the country. So
1: cool. Look at my. I'm still going to look and see if I can go, but I don't think I can go. I have too many things happening. Um, I don't have anything to plug. Oh, I I guess if you're in New York City and you want to come see some live stand up Mm -hmm. with no photographer, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, our photographer, preferred photographer, is not going to be there. So we're just not going to have one and just going to be crazy and have comedy that just happens in a black hole. And (laughs) we just enjoy it for what happens in the moment. This is, this is my revolutionary contribution.
0: You're acting like it's unheard of, but it, that's just like, it
1: is unheard of.
0: <laughs> it's just like saying no? a peanut butter and jelly sandwich without bananas. It's like, well, no, it's just, you can just say a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It's a thing all on its own. I feel
1: like we have not had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich without bananas in years
0: around <laughs> I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's really a joke I've heard is, oh, every comedy show has a photographer now, but I don't think it's like a standard part of it where you have to point out if it's not going to be there
1: yeah okay i, I know so. i just i it's like everybody assumes there will be after photographer. anyway, everyone... no, photographers are great just, i was just kidding this is all great it's wonderful uh anyway plug casual sets the next one is um october 28 i want to say it's a thursday before halloween it's at 8 p.m at friends and lovers it's 10 bucks even if you don't have 10 bucks you can also come and hang out at the bar and i believe that they like play it and you can hear the show from the bar and not pay anything and just get a beer and tip your bartender. That's fine too. We hang out afterwards. It'll be great. Uh, check it out. Follow me on Twitter or Casual Sets NYC on Twitter also for info.
0: That's All it. right. All right. Are you mad?